Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of My Climate Diet, the podcast where I'm shedding the pounds of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm Lisa Pettibone, and I speak for the trees, which money doesn't grow on, or so I've been told. This month, I want to focus on a big ticket action that I hope will reduce my carbon emissions by one whole ton going into summer. I'm going to look at the role money plays in climate change and what I can do with my money to make a difference. The main challenge I've set myself this month is to change my checking account to an environmental bank. But before I get started with that, I want to share some background about money and emissions. This has been an issue that I've been interested in for years now, and I trace it back to an article I read back in 2012. It's called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. It was a piece written by Bill McKibben in Rolling Stone magazine. The article centers around three numbers that he gives and says are key to understanding the challenge of climate change. The first number is two degrees Celsius. That's the maximum amount of warming that scientists thought at the time the planet could take without causing major disruptions to natural systems. Now scientists think that number is closer to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which means an even more ambitious goal than McKibben thought back in 2012, and a goal that's echoed in the Paris Climate Agreement. So two degrees Celsius, the maximum amount our planet can heat up by without making us all toast. The second number is 565 gigatons. That is our global carbon budget, how much carbon dioxide we can emit in the next 40 years to stay under the two degree threshold. At the time the article was written, experts projected our carbon budget to be spent within 16 years, so before 2030. A global energy report last year by the International Energy Agency shows we're still on that path described seven years ago with energy use on the rise. Considering that we have 1.5 degrees of warming allowed, not two, I suspect that this number 565 is much lower. But at any rate, the number itself isn't as important. What McKibben really gets at is what these numbers mean together. So to really understand that, let's look at the third number, which is 2,795 gigatons. That's the amount of carbon in the proven reserves of oil and gas companies. So this is the amount of carbon that companies that extract fossil fuels know still exists and plan to extract. That number is a lot bigger than 565, about five times bigger. So if all you remember from today is one number, that's five. And that means we know we have five times more fossil fuels in the ground than can be used without completely destroying the planet. Wow. So either these companies need to be massively devalued or it's already game over because there are really only two scenarios. One is these 2,795 gigatons are all extracted and emitted and humanity enters a post-apocalyptic phase, or at some point, 
someone somewhere says, no, sorry, folks, you got to keep a lot of those in the ground. In which case, the most profitable companies in the history of the planet lose 80% of the value of these resources that they've written on their books. So this was really a sobering article for me. And I've taught it to several classes since first reading it because it tells such a clear and important story. And it shows the scale of change that we need. And also that for us as a species to survive, we basically have to tell the world's richest, most profitable companies that they can't get access to any of their money. They have to leave it all underground. To give you another number, the current estimated value of these fossil fuel reserves is 27 trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollars. So let's say 80% of those have to stay in the ground. That's 20 trillion, with a T, dollars that would become stranded assets. Those would be huge red losses on these companies' financial statements that would turn them from cash cows to bankrupt, essentially. Understanding this, that we have dramatically more fossil fuel reserves than we can possibly burn and stay within the maximum limit of global warming that will avoid tipping points and dramatic changes in our biological processes and systems, this has led to the divestment movement. So divestment or disinvestment from fossil fuels argues two things. First, morally, we can't invest money in these companies anymore. Because if we do, we're profiting off of the end of human civilization as we know it. And that's just morally wrong. But since this argument doesn't work so well when money's on the line with certain segments of the population, the divestment movement makes a second financial argument that says, listen, if we know that 80% of these reserves have to stay in the ground, that suddenly makes fossil fuel investment incredibly risky because at some point in time, other investors are going to notice how massively overvalued these companies are. So we want to get off this train before it goes off the rails. McKibben, in his article, he points out the fossil fuel companies as kind of the bad guys of climate change, that they've been getting rich off of trashing the planet. But to me, the problem is bigger than just fossil fuel companies, because virtually everyone with a bank account or a financial investment or even a pension or retirement account is involved because almost all of these different pockets of money lead in dribs and drabs to financing fossil fuel. So that's why I'm challenging myself to change my bank account this month, because I think that this is a way that by getting my money out of fossil fuels, I can save on carbon emissions in the long term with one fairly simple action that I can take today or next week. So let's take a closer look. How does my money contribute to climate change? Let's say you open a bank account and you put in a thousand dollars or a thousand euro or a thousand yen or a thousand whatever. Depending on your country's reserve requirements, and this means what your country's law says about the minimum amount of money that has to be available in the bank, your bank can now lend additional money 
exceeding your deposit. A fairly conservative reserve requirement is about 10%. So even with that, your $1,000 checking account lets the bank invest or lend out $10,000. What does your bank do with this $10,000? Do you know? I don't necessarily. Banks can offer personal or commercial loans, but they can also use investment instruments such as government bonds, stocks, and mutual funds. We saw most dramatically in 2008 with the financial crisis how interconnected and intransparent banks' investments were. So it's fairly safe to say that at least some of that $10,000 that your bank can now play with thanks to your $1,000 deposit is going to fossil fuels. The divestment campaign that was started in part by 350.org in response to this article seeks to harness the power of money to nip climate change in the bud. The idea here is if fossil fuel companies can't fund their activities, they'll have to stop extracting sooner. This isn't just an abstract argument. Alexander Salmon wrote last year in the New Republic that the billions of dollars given to bail out the U.S. banks in 2008 were largely responsible for the fracking boom. I found this crazy. But through his research, he shows that banks funneled the money that they got from the government into what they considered safe investments with much going to the natural gas industry that was seen as a safe investment because it had already flatlined. Loans in the oil and gas sectors almost tripled thanks to bailout money, causing a ripple effect that Salmon links to about 5% of total world oil production today. Can you imagine if that money had gone to solar, wind, or energy efficiency initiatives? scary. So where you put your money can make a big difference in whether you're helping the climate. And that's why I'm going to change my bank account next week. Do you already have a fossil fuel free bank account? Are you happy with it? I'd love to hear about it. Any tips you've got, please send them to me. You can write me via email, lisa at myclimatediet.org. You can send me a tweet at lisa pettibone or drop me a voice message on Anchor. What's giving me hope this week? I thought I'd stick with the money theme. There's a bit of background here, though, first. So my mother last week sent me some outraged, livid text messages that U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin basically confirmed that his agency is not going to release the redesign of the $20 bill that had been agreed on in 2016. The Treasury Department released plans in 2016 to redesign the five, ten, and twenty-dollar bills, including replacing Andrew Jackson with Harriet Tubman on the front of the twenty-dollar bill. My mother texted me in a very angry tone, and these texts made me even more angry, but probably not for the reason my mother had expected. Instead, I was angry because I saw this whole news cycle as playing into a passive partisanship that I find extremely troubling. However you feel about Donald Trump, Republicans, democracy, whatever, is completely confirmed by this news. Whatever the base, this news stokes it up. Donald Trump is a racist. Trump is a patriot. And the world continues to burn. 
but you can nurture your safe sense of outrage that doesn't require you to actually do anything. (sighs) But I said I'm hopeful, right? So after the depressing text messages, which I did not reply to, I chanced across a newspaper article about an artist named Dano Wall, who created a Harriet Tubman stamp that he hopes people will use to change the currency until the official redesign comes along. Reading this filled my heart with such joy. It didn't just make my day, it made my week. It shouldn't be surprising coming from a podcast in which I act as guinea pig for climate action, but I think it is so important to not just complain about what we don't like, but to get out and do something about it. So if you, like my mother, are livid that Andrew Jackson is going to be on the $20 bill for eight more years, go out and buy a Harriet Tubman stamp. Stamp your 20s. Get them into circulation. Make a change. So I love, love, love that Dano Wall took a bit of news that angered him and found a creative, positive DIY solution. So thanks, Dano. You're giving me hope this week. Next week, I'm going to look at the options for climate-friendly checking accounts in Germany, pick the one that's right for me, and change my bank. I'm also going to try to calculate my carbon savings. And if I don't get to one ton from just this change, I'm going to look into changing my American bank account the following week. So stay tuned. Also, a quick update on my homemade deodorant. I finally found shea butter. It took me two weeks and six stores, but I finally found shea butter and made a new batch of deodorant that looks extra creamy. It's in the refrigerator right now, and I can't wait to try it out. This week, I want to thank Jason Banks for listening. He wrote me that he hates the hobbies and interests section of the resume. So he came up with a new section for his called Podcasts I Listen To, and it includes My Climate Diet. That is such a great idea. I really love it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening. For links and more information about what I talked about this week, go to my website, myclimatediet.org. The music in this podcast is by David from Kvents. I'd love to hear from you too. So feel free to write me an email with your climate question or climate solution to lisa at myclimatediet.org. Rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, share it with your friends, and consider starting a climate diet of your own. Because if we were all to go on a climate diet, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I don't